0: Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? It is exciting for me. Get to be up here two straight weeks. Uh, I only hope that you guys are excited to be up here two straight weeks. Some of you maybe not so much. Uh, Yeah, we better just keep on moving. Um, Yeah. Last week, as we were looking at Isaiah, we all didn't get the sign that Ahaz was offered. The Patriots did, in fact, win the Super Bowl, and so. But all jokes aside, last week we talked about how. Ahaz uh, refused to trust in the king of kings and instead put his trust in earthly kings. And so we see how Ahaz failed the test to truly trust God. And so that leads us today to chapter 14. And, And really, I think we need to look at chapter 13, because this is where these oracles or pronouncements will begin. And so there's a string of oracles that happen from chapter 13 through chapter 23. And Oracles. These are basically judgments that are about to be laid out uh, before several people. And so today we're specifically looking at the oracle concerning Babylon, which was the earthly representation of wealth. It was the earthly representation of glory, power and splendor. Um, and, And so at this point, Babylon's not even really a threat to Judah. Ultimately, it would become the greatest threat. But here it's not. Um, it is a part of the Assyrian Empire, which is a huge threat, but Babylon basically views itself as Texas here. Is anybody a Texan in here? What's that saying? Everything's bigger in Texas? Yeah, I, I don't know if I could buy it, but that's basically what Babylon is saying here. Hey, I am a part of the Assyrian Empire, but we have where glory, splendor, wealth, prosperity, actually Lie. If you look at uh, chapter 21, it says here the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Um, and so if you look at it here in Assyria, it it's basically lies on the um, Euphrates River and it's got all these trade routes. You would think that there is this huge prosperity going on in Babylon. But this here, the, the oracle concerning uh, in ch- chapter 21, it says uh, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? When we think of wilderness, we think of barren, we think of emptiness, we think of nothing, out in the middle of nowhere. And the sea's anything but dry and barren. And so this is like an oxymoron, but actually it's sarcasm. Because if you look at it, Babylon, on the surface, has everything going for it. But then when you dive in, when you press in, and we're going to see this throughout today. When you press in, you're going to see that Babylon is empty. It's dry. It's barren. And so we back up uh, to chapter 13, where this oracle begins about Babylon and this this judgment that's going to be pronounced on Babylon. And the thing here, Isaiah sets this up. So we've, we've mentioned that there's going to be oracles from chapter 13 to chapter 21. But here in the beginning, the first 16 verses, Isaiah does nothing to mention Babylon. Why is that? What is he trying to do here? He's trying to set up and he's using language that refers to the whole world. So this is specifically concerning Babylon, but the whole world is going to be judged as well. He's setting this up. And this is a big statement for Isaiah to make. It's a big statement because if you think about it, in this time, Judah is very small. But here, Isaiah is saying, my God is the God of the world. And so that would be for us. It'd be like the, the God of Murfreesboro standing up and saying, our God's actually the God of the world. Like all you other ones, no, our God is the one. And so I want to stop right here because I feel like this is a huge, huge moment. And I think teenagers, especially for you in this room, you're going to be faced with a similar situation in your lifetime to what Isaiah has to do right now. If you look at the way our world is going, if you look at where we're going, there's going to be a time when Christianity is not the majority, but the minority. And so you're going to have to stand firm in your faith. You're going to have to stand up when God, everything around us, our circumstances, everything going around says... No, your God is not the God of this world. The things of the pleasures, our gods, are what's ultimately ruling. You're going to have to stand firm in your faith. And so right now, right, isn't that what faith is? Standing firm in something that when circumstances around you aren't saying that? And so students, please ground yourself, root yourself. It's easy to say yes when it's obvious. It's not so easy to say yes when it's not obvious, when things around us are swirling. And so, right now, I would just encourage you, teenagers, students, ground yourself in your faith, root yourself in this word because it is good. And hopefully, I can show you that through Scripture this morning. And so, why does Babylon? What has Babylon done to deserve this judgment? Why are they the poster child for judgment in the world? Look at verse eleven of chapter thirteen. It says here, "I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogance." And lay down the pompous pride of the ruthless. So right here, they have pride, arrogance, and ruthlessness. They are basically saying to themselves, I am God. And so the separation is clear. We have God, who is the God on high. And you have people saying, I'm trying to be God. I want to be God. And so a God that is perfect, who is wonderful, who is excellent, cannot have sinful rebels in his presence. Flu season is coming around. And like I want to put a hedge of protection around my house. But if I bring in a bunch of people that have flu, then what does it do? It's going to it's going to minimize my house is going to be full of flu. It can't tolerate that. And so that's exactly what God's Tiffany. I love this about her and I hate it about her when she gets sick. She's like, oh, come, come comfort me. Come cuddle me. And I'm like, girl, I'm about to stick you in the room. We're going to put hazmat up like I'm going to feed you with a hazmat suit on. Like, no, I'm not getting near that. I don't want that to get me in a much greater way. That's what God is doing. God, if he were to allow sinful rebels into his presence, is making himself less than God and elevating people. And so right here, the attempt by these people. And I think this is where we differentiate between pride and self-respect. Self-respect says I am made in the image of God, while pride is manufactured by our accomplishments. Pride says, yeah, look what I've done. I've done this. I've done that. I came from nothing and now I have access where self-respect says I am made in God's image. I have worth because of Jesus Christ. I have worth because of his death, because of his resurrection, that he came as a sinless man and died for me. Ah, This is good. And so what is this earthly? Glory! What is this glory that Babylon is attempting to have for itself? This pride? What does it get them? Look at verses 17 through 19 here. Behold, I am stirring up the medes against them who have no regard for si- silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows, will be slaughter- uh, their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity the children. And ba- Babylon, the glory of kingdoms and the splendor pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. When God overthrew them. And so the glory of the nations means nothing. The glory of the nations means nothing. What their pursuit of is going to end. It's going to be nothing. And it's going to be ruined in the end. And God is going to be the one responsible for it. And so we also look. Chapter 21, verse 2. This is also part of our reading this week. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the the sighing she has caused, I will bring to an end. This leads to nothing. It ultimately leads to destruction. When we try to elevate ourselves to God, when we try and have pride, arrogance, ruthlessness, it leads to our destruction. And so that leads us here to chapter 14. And so what do we make of this oracle in, in our reading this week? What do we make of this destruction of Babylon. For starters, let me say the future is uncertain. Oftentimes we say things are sure bets only to be let down by them. And in in research for this week, uh, I came up with a few examples and uh, just want to go through these with with you. Uh, The Cheetos lip balm. Uh, Yeah, I don't even know where to start with this. I don't see the progression. We have mint, cherry, maybe even vanilla, but then Cheetos. And I mean, I can imagine somebody walking. I know what you had for a snack today. I mean, was it orange colored? Like, what is it? I think they should stick to chips. Uh, Next, touch of yogurt shampoo. This was in the 70s. I wasn't born then, so I don't know if, yeah, some of you gray-haired people in the room might have experienced that. Hoping to capitalize on the trend of adding natural food products such as lemon, herbs, and honey, Clairol thought a yogurt shampoo was what the American consumer needed. Turns out they had severely miscalculated. Apparently, many customers were confused by what they had bought because there were several reported cases of people eating their shampoo. (laughs) Next one. Any coffee drinkers in the house? I think there's a lot of them in here. Maxwell House brewed coffee. Now they're on to something. Wrong. This already brewed coffee in a carton was supposed to be convenient and easy. Well, if you were lucky enough to stumble upon this this in the grocery store you would find it in the refrigerated section with enjoy hot written on it. Begs the question, hot or cold? Turns out this carton on the inside was made of foil. So if you tried to microwave this puppy, you were in for quite the disaster. Needless to say, it was removed from the shelves soon after. There's a few others, E.T., the Atari game. After spending 26 million for the rights to the franchise and marketing in 1982, mind you, Atari made 4 million copies, but only sold 1.5 million. They ended up <laughs> burying the rest in a landfill. <laughs> this last one, I, this one, this one gets me. Uh, Orbitz drinks. Has anybody heard of these things? Orbitz drinks? Well, nobody else in this room has, but my wife certainly did. I was going over some of these things with her, and she was like, Orbitz drinks? Oh, I love those things. The lava lamp of drinks. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, I was not sure what to think. My wife not only knew these things, but loved them. Uh, she was actually giddy about it. and She was, she was like, I'm going to go research and see if I can find these things on the Internet. Uh, it, was, it was an interesting time at the house. Anyways, I know we've had a good laugh over some of these things. But I'm sure you can think of many more if we were to sit here and do that. But the reality is our future is not certain. We live in a reality where our health fades Tornadoes rage, hurricanes rage, friends let us down, family members die. Elected officials disappoint us, nations rage, and wars crippled. About the most certain thing in our lives today is uncertainty, unless someone reveals it to us. The one who holds history in his hand, the one who holds the past, the present, and the future in his hands, which is a sturdy foundation for our trust. But why should we trust? Why should we trust this God? When the future seems uncertain, my hope is that chapter 14 would give us the answer to that. And so we're about to dive into this, but just a little context. Isaiah is prophesied to Judah in the 8th century. God's people rebelled, idolatry and injustice scarred the land and enemy nations raged on every side. And so a just God would not tolerate treason against him, sends his people into exile. And that's where we start in verse one. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the people will take them and bring them to their place. The house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. And so what we see here is that judgment in chapter 13 and 21, hopefully this judgment that has been heaped on Babylon pays the way for compassion from the Lord. And so here we are. God will show compassion by bringing his people back from exile. He rejected them and now is bringing them back. And so there's really two main events to consider here. The exodus, when God delivers his people and the exile, when God punishes. His constantly unfaithful people. And this actually happens a couple of times. They are basically prisoners of war and they are deprived of rights here. But God says, I'm bringing them home. Remember last week, Isaiah's son delivered a message to Ahaz. What was that message? A remnant will return. Here it is. The remnant is returning. And so this is really cool. This is great to see in scripture. But what does this mean for us in 2019? The Old Testament exile is a picture of the punishment our sin deserves. God will not tolerate unclean, sinful rebels in his presence. And here God banishes his people from the promised land. And and so sin will ruin your future. That's what we have to see here. Sin ruins your future. Think about Adam and Eve. They were banished from the garden because of what? Their sin, their pride, their I can do this better than God mentality. But God here promises to give rest to those who trust him. God would grant forgiveness and rest to those who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus ultimately suffered the banishment, the exile that we deserved. And paved the way back for our exile. This is the greatest compassion ever. That when we are exiles, when we are sinful, when we are shipped out of God's presence. He ushers us back in through Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate compassion here. And it's not just compassion on the people. He says that he'll have compassion on Jacob and will bring and will again choose Israel. But what does he say after that? Sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So God had a huge plan in mind. This wasn't just for Israel. This wasn't just for people. This was for, was for the nations. The gospel would be proclaimed throughout the world. Think about Matthew 24:14, if we think about the future, or the New Testament. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testament to the nations, and then the end will come. Or what about Mark 11:17? Jesus is actually quoting Isaiah here when he says, "My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations." So God's here sitting here saying, "These nations, these, these people that are surrounding you, these people that are warring against you, they'll actually lay down their swords. And take up a posture of praise. That's a good news for us. That not only when we are being oppressed. When things are around us are going badly. Some of these people will actually join us in worshiping God. The oppression will be reversed. Now that when when people are oppressing us. When God comes and he delivers his people. That oppression gets reversed. And it says here. It talks about female slaves and male slaves. It's not literally the, the sense that now, hey, this is great. I get slaves out of this. No, it's they're going to actually be slaves to your God. They're going to worship your God with you. And so I look, at, look out across this room and, and some of us may be thinking, well, I mean, these people oppressed us. Why do they deserve this? Well, if you look at it, we are the nations. We are the nations here. This isn't something where we're sitting here and receiving this word. No, the, this is us here as the nation's. And those of us in this room who have trusted in Christ, we have received this compassion of God as the nations. We were spiritual exiles, and now we are not. We are children of God. This is amazing. And so since we receive received this compassion, we have an obligation to now share this compassion. This compassion, those people who have wronged us, persecuted us, or just, just the general bad in the world. We display compassion because they are not out of the reach of God. We have confidence in that. God here is saying, those that oppress you, I will bring some of them to you, bring some of them to my worship. That's the same thing in our world today. We look at there's so much bad, we think, well, they are so far beyond any help. But here God's saying, no, nothing is out of my reach. Imagine the person who has wronged you, calling you up this week and saying, I am sorry. And not only am I sorry, but I have put my trust in Christ. That is good News for us today. This text gives us hope. And not only hope for compassion for everybody, but the, even the oppressor. Think about a New Testament picture of this Paul. Paul is giving approval to the uh, stoning of Stephen. He's putting Christians to death. That's just the short list of the laundry things that Paul has done wrong. But what does he do? He becomes a servant of God. He becomes the greatest missionary we've ever known. This reality gives us hope that we can boldly approach God... With our petitions for our family members, friends, neighbors, and those we think have no chance because God's passion is within reach of everyone. And so that's what we see there. We're going to read now from from three on. Um, We're going to read through 23. I know it's a long passage, but bear with me. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve. You will will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon say, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shade to greet you, shades to greet you. All who are leaders on the earth, it raises from their thrones. And all who are kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you, laid, uh, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will send above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to shield to the far reaches of the pit. Those, of you who will see, uh, those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overwhelmed cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pale like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not you will not be joined. With them in barrel, Because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers no more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons. Because of the guilt of the fathers. Lest they rise and possess the earth. And fill the face. Uh, fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise against them. Declares the Lord of hosts. And will cut off from Babylon. Names and remnant. Descendants and posterity. Declares the Lord. And I will make it possession of the hedgehog and pools of water and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction declares the Lord of hosts whoa that's a lot and so right here I think the overarching thing that we can see trust God because he will put his enemies to shame the defeat of God's enemy is good news for us we can celebrate that the the guilty will receive justice think about verse 4 right here it says uh, you will take up the taunt against the king of Babylon. And, and so it, it's talking about a king, but I think it's any king of Babylon. It's any nation that is sinful. This isn't just a, a target. Yes, it is a target for this king, but it is a target that any king, any nation, any of us who will not trust in the ultimate king are going to be judged. And so we see this, and, and some of us, some will say this refers to Satan or Lucifer, and I think scripture is clear here. That this is a uh, future uh, revelation. This is future talk. And so yes. uh, Satan is a part of the ultimate fall. But Satan's fall happened before. And so this is an all inclusive defeat. This isn't just Satan's defeat. This is anybody in sin. Is going to be defeated. And so what I think is important to see here though. Is the fate of the king. And the fate of God's enemy. This is a great reversal. The oppressor is now getting oppressed by God. This is poetic justice here. Verse eight. I love what verse eight says. The cypress rejoices you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, "Since you were laid though. no woodcutter will come up against us." This is a taunt. This is like good old fashioned just trash talk going here. Uh, the cedars and the and the uh, the cedars of Lebanon they were often cut down to be then placed in kings' temples in their their kingdoms, and so. These, these teachers are saying, no more are we going to be cut down. Think about it again in verse 9. Sheol, the realm of the dead. This king is now met by the welcome committee at the gates of hell. And not only that, they're even making fun of him and mocking him. This once great king and proud king is now united in darkness with proud rulers. And even ones that he probably once trampled over. And they're now saying, you're just like us. You're just like us. You're disgraced. And, and this is real and this is deep for him. This is a conscious torment. Hell is a conscious torment. This eternal suffering in hell for those that continue rebellion, God, is conscious. You're not sitting there unaware of where you're at. You are living in darkness for eternity. This is not a temporary state. This is eternal. Verse 12. You thought you were the brightest star. You're actually going to plummet to the darkest pit. God wants us to be like God. How foolish this king was to feel he was worthy and invincible. It continues in verses 18 through 20. He receives a major blow here in verses 18 through 20. It says, and the kings of the nation glory lie in their own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave. So this was a huge honor for kings to be laid in a tomb at this point. And so here it's saying, no, you're going to lay on the battlefield as the lowest man that's died. You won't even be recognizable. You won't even be recognized. And so it continues. It says he won't even have a name. This king, this once great, proud king that wanted his name to be exalted, to be praised. He's not even going to have a name. He's not even going to be remembered. And so authority matters to God. And those who abuse their authority will be held accountable by the Lord. Don't be deceived by the kingdoms of this world. These nations, these kingdoms are like dust. And the Lord... It says here in verse 20, I will sweep it with a broom of destruction. These kingdoms, they're like dust that God's going to come and he's just going to sweep a broom and they're going to be no more. There's going to be no remnant. Whereas those chosen by God, there will be a remnant here. There is no remnant. There is nothing left of the destructive king. But those of us who do trust, we have confidence because Jesus and he will return and he will bring that broom of justice. He will bring that broom, uh, destruction and clean house. Because these enemies will go down. And while he is, Isaiah, talking about judgment here on Babylon, he's indirectly talking to Israel. He's indirectly here saying, don't trust in the kingdoms of this world. Do not trust in the things of this world. The only trust you have is to look at Jesus. Our temptation in our world today is to look at our circumstances and say, I have to make alliances with kingdoms or I have to make alliances with things around us because that's ultimately what would satisfy us. But no, here he is saying, don't be tempted. Don't do that. Trust in the Lord. And so I think the only ones that are on the right side of history, according to this passage, are those who repent and trust in God. And so for those of you in this room that haven't placed your trust in Christ, I wonder how you're receiving this. What, what are your thoughts on this? What are you putting your hopes in? And, and I fear that uh, success and the things that we often put our hopes in can often blind us to our ultimate reality, to our ultimate uh, ending, where our ultimate destiny will be. And for believers in this room, for people that haven't put their trust, we need to see in this room today, wake up and realize self-reliance on ourselves. Only leads to judgment. Self reliance on the things of this world is only going to lead us to judgment. And trust in God and God alone is what gives you life. Judgment can be tough. Reading these verses can be tough because each one of us in this room probably knows somebody that's living in sin. But here's the beauty of this we are in the in between times. God has not come back. And God has given us the necessary tools. He's given us prayer, He's given us His Spirit. He's given us his word. And so we can boldly go. And we can boldly proclaim this glorious gospel to people that have never heard. Or who have been resistant to it. Because we've seen that nobody is out of the realm of God. We can do that. So we resist pride. These verses seem strong. But pride is wanting things to go our way. Wanting things to be uh, for us. But take confidence in God's victory. This entire section. Is for our confidence. This is why there's so much detail. Because the fall is great. But the victory is greater. There's so much detail in here for us to see. But God's victory is greater. And he wants to show us that here. And so we have hope in the midst of uncertainty. That we can trust God in the future. Whatever's coming tomorrow may seem bleak for us in this room. There's so much hurt going on in this world today. But we have hope in Christ. Yesterday, Tiffany and I... Um, Went to watch a movie on a missionary hero of mine, Graham Staines. Graham Staines was a missionary for 30 years in India. And he was specifically targeting or ministering to the leprosy community. And so if anybody knows anything about India, the caste system in India is strong. And lepers are basically the lowest form, the untouchables. And here's a man going in and treating and loving and showing Christ to them. One night uh, in actually January 23rd, 1999, Graham and his two sons were at a monthly meeting of believers and they were sleeping in their van or their uh, their car. And they were ultimately burned to death alive in their car for their beliefs, for their trust. So, so many questions swirl in my mind, like, why would you take this guy that is loving on lepers, that is. Showing your good and gracious gospel to people. And is loving the least of these. And and these questions still go on my mind. But uh, his wife Gladys uh, got to proclaim truth to the entire country. And this is what she says. This is written in the newspapers. I have only one message for the people of India. I am not bitter. Neither am I angry. But I have one great desire. That each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Who gave his life. For their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. Mm. He also had a 13 year old daughter, and listen to her words just days after her father was martyred. I praise the Lord that he found my father and brothers worthy to die for him. Brothers and sisters, we have a good God who promises to deliver us in the end. Gladys Staines, here, confidence was in the Lord. Her husband and her two boys' future were secure because they had placed their trust in the Lord. The outcome was secure. They didn't have to worry about death because ultimately they were going to be reunited with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And she also knew that she can continue this mission because she knew her future was secure. Let us raise our children knowing that their future is secure in the Lord. Let us raise them so they can sit there and say... Yes, my dad's gone, but praise God, he was worthy to die for him. Hmm. This is just good news for us. So God is not absent or silent. This chapter rests in your Bible to show you that truth will prevail. Justice will flow like mighty water. Righteousness like a uh, rolling stream. And So how does God do this? How does he do this? He just does this through Jesus Christ, the King, the Lord of Lords. This king would not come in pride, but in humility. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. This king did dwell in heavens, but humbled himself to come to earth as a man, gave himself. Instead of taking captives, he freed captives. He ransomed himself and offered his life as a sacrifice to those who would mock, beat, and scorn and kill him. This king didn't die, though, and stay in the grave. No, he rose victorious, now reigns high from heaven. Praise King Jesus. And so as we close this, look at verses 22 and 23 uh, in Isaiah 14. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog. Continue down. If we continue into 24, the Lord has sworn as I have planned, I have purposed, I will break. We see a lot of I statements in there. God says, "Trust me because I will have compassion on my people and I will have compassion on the nations, and I will defeat the enemies of the world." And He's absolutely to be trusted. Who here in this room fears Babylon today? Who fears Assyrian here? Who fears Philistia? No one in this room does. God is faithful to His word. So today, let us not put our trust in our pride our possessions, our kings, or our kingdoms. Let's not look at our circumstances and forget God, but let us trust in him because he has, he is, and he always will be faithful. And because he has offered you a way out of exile through Jesus Christ. And let us be faithful not only to receive that grace, that compassion, but also extend it to the world because there are people who are hurting, who are in exile today.